Good morning and welcome. I'm Penny Johnson, Dean of Students at SSA, and it is my privilege this morning to introduce uh, Dr. Rizzini to you. Professor Irene Rizzini received her master's degree at the University of Chicago School of so Social Service Administration, right here, and her PhD in sociology from Rio de Janeiro Institute of Research in Brazil. She is currently a professor and researcher in the Department of Social Work at the Pontifical Catholic University in, in Rio, of Rio de Janeiro. In 1984, Professor Rizzini founded the Center for Research on Children, which in 2002 became the International Center for Research and Policy on Children at Pontifical Catholic University. Professor Rizzini is the director of the International Center for Research and Policy on Childhood and the president of Childwatch International Research Network in Norway. She also serves as member of the editorial board of several journals, among which are Childhood, A Global Journey of Child Research, published, published by SAGE, and the International Journal of Social Welfare, University of Stockholm, Sweden, and University of California, Berkeley. Professor Rizzini has been working for many years with a number of organizations that are responsible for social policies and programs for children in Brazil and around the world, including government departments with responsibility for children in the federal government of Brazil, several Brazilian state governments and municipalities, and a number of nonprofit research and policy centers in Brazil and throughout the world. She is currently an international fellow with the Kellogg Institute at the University of Notre Dame, and we are enormously pleased to welcome Dr. Rossini here today. The pleasure is mine, and I am particularly happy to, to have Harold with us here today. Harold has been part of my trajectory and my struggle to work with so many people around the world to improve children's lives. Um, I have my notes and I will follow them but feel free to interrupt me if you want to dialogue with me, ask questions and we will have some time to do that after uh, I speak as well but in different countries this works in different ways so um, in Brazil, very often people will prefer to, um, to talk as we go, but it's up to you. I would like very much to thank the invitation to be here today. Uh, Dean Penny Johnson, thank you very much. The colleagues here present and all the students I, when first I met Christine Buller, I was a bit um, almost like a mirror. I could see myself, oh, she's so young, and she is uh, so enthusiastically leading this idea to attract other students around campus and to bring this idea of getting to know other people who are in contact with other contexts, contexts, other realities around the world. I particularly thank uh, Christine um, for all the, con the connection, the many calls, the beautiful, beautiful work she put together with Karina Hattemarsen. It takes people like you to take the initiative many times for 
big, big changes. Um, and I am very pleased to be part of this moment. A year ago, I was here with many others to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Chapin Hall Center for Children. And it especially touches my heart to be here, and I will tell you why. As Christine and others present here, I was a graduate student at SSA. It was 1980, and I felt that I was very different from other people in the sense that I brought my country with me, and I was the only foreigner. For the two years I was here, I met people that had relatives from various countries, but they were raised here. So that struck me as an experience that was very unique, and that is changing very quickly, including here in this university. I was here when Harold Richman and his colleagues put together the first edition of The State of the Child in Illinois, a precursor of, to the founding of the center, Chaping Hall Center for Children. And I have been privileged to watch the center grow to become such a major contributor to our understanding of so many key issues affecting children. In a remarkably short period of time, the center became one of the major sources of expertise to, uh, on the problems of children who enter child welfare systems. That my passage uh, here was very important in my own career, and you'll see how. As the center grew, it started to reach out to people doing similar work in other countries, setting up its own international research network and joining the network which I currently serve as president, Child Watch International. We are approximately 50 uh, key institutions around the world in 45 countries. Um, key institutions, we call them this way because they are supposed to be institutions that are already networking in their own countries, in their own regions, so they do reach out to many other connections through their work, doing what Harold said, trying to strengthen their uh, research and to use the information they produce, the data they produce, to affect policies and to improve children's lives. When I first arrived in Hyde Park from Rio de Janeiro, I felt that no one understood my pain and indignation about the desperate condition of children in my city, my country, and my continent. I'm much closer to my continent as well as I started working through Child Watch. And Norma Del Rio, here present from the Children's Institute in Mexico City, will be joining us today in one of the workshops, getting to work together with eight countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, and that's expanding. It's just the beginning. But I soon learned that while my, our worlds were quite different, some of our concerns overlapped. 
I had been involved first as a volunteer and then as a researcher in the large, impersonal, uncaring children's institutions in my home city for many, many years before I arrived here. I was eager to discover what strategies the U.S. had developed to provide alternatives for children who were taken from or who left their homes. I was a young professor in psychology, teaching child development, but eager to expand my perspectives towards research and policy. I got here as a, as a psychologist, and it was a bit of a shock to see that uh, the policy area was so small, but that was everything I wanted. So to be interacting with students who were trying to be um, therapists, and I, my movement was the opposite, was to expand to other areas, was to be able to move from my work inside large closed institutions where children were placed to work on the child welfare systems to understand why those systems force children out of their homes, children who are not orphans, to place them in those institutions. My studies and connections, the, the studies and connections I established at this university made it possible for me to go back to Brazil as my country was emerging from 20 years of military dictatorship, prepared to make a vigorous contribution to the debates and decisions about improving the lives of children and youth. More than that, it also helped me to prepare myself to become one of the international leaders to work towards strengthening child research throughout the world. To have this university as part of that endeavor is a source of a great honor to me. This moment brings me back to those days. To be here brings me back to those days. And the opportunity invites me to look back at my own trajectory as I went back to Brazil in 1983. What would be some of the most crucial issues facing young people globally? What are some of the concerns regarding youth around the world? I cannot possibly talk about all of them. Unfortunately, there are evidences of very difficult situations, very complicated, complex realities where these young people are growing up exactly now. But I will focus on some of them some that I have the opportunity to more than do research on or read about to visit in my many trips to different countries. According to the latest world reports, some of the most pressing issues are not necessarily new ones. They are related to poverty, inequality, violence, displacement and discrimination, but they certainly present some important current challenges. Large-scale change and transformation is not a new experience in the world. The phenomenon of waves of settlement, conquests or trade 
opening up one culture to other cultures is as old as the history of human settlements. Those changes have always impacted the lives of children, youth, children, youth, their families, their communities. But the contemporary experience of globalization seems quantitatively different from changing relationships between communities and countries in the past. Our economic lives, for example, are increasingly interdependent as more markets become world markets. One result is that children who live in villages or even countries which are not major players in the growth industries of that globalized economy are denied many economic opportunities from birth. But globalization has also brought improvements in the lives of children and youth. We should celebrate the fact that more children have risen above poverty and that India and China are experiencing an ex explosion of economic growth. At the same time, we should remember that income inequality between and within many countries is increasing and that the capacity of the have-nots to make it to the global economy diminishes as the price of entry gets higher in terms of education, skill levels, and levels of capital investment. The age-old tragedies of war, famine, and disease continue to wreck the lives of vast numbers of children, youth, and their families. And as we know, poverty is not just about income. 53% of the world population live under $2 a day. 53% of the world population. In the less developed countries, and here to use the politically correct term, the, the majority world, almost 60% of the population live under $2 a day. There are 5 million, three, 5 billion, 300 million, and 39 people in this majority world. There are five times more people living in the so-called less developed countries around the world. The, the whole idea of abuse and neglect was completely new to me until I arrived at SSA. <laughs> and, you know, it is, it is something interesting. I used to work in a hospital in Rio de Janeiro. I, I worked there for three years, a public hospital with children normally. Uh, I was a psychologist at the time and I worked with doctors and the family would come with children with, their, with lots of symptoms and the, we would, our work was to, to help these young doctors just not simply to medicate all the children but to have a more comprehensive understanding of, of the, the, the family story. And these stories were, as we know, very, um, very often stories of a lot of um, neglect that if you are not careful, the, the easiest thing to do is to say it's a neglectful mother, it's a neglectful father. 
And when you look at the situation, you see that there, there's huge neglect from the state. Parents there feel very hopeless, very ashamed of not being able to provide to the needs their children have. So in that experience for three years, I never heard the word sexual abuse, the term sexual abuse. And I was, I was struck last year in, with several of my students to have one, one student that worked at the same unit as I worked in the late 70s, early 80s, to be studying sexual abuse in this unit. And it was a, a very high percentage of cases that appeared. In, so it's just one example of something that was invisible, including to many of us. We knew, we knew there were many problems, but this was something that was not talked about. And it tells the fact that in many countries, um, the idea of being able, of having an agenda of protection of children that are physically abused, which is one of the very, very current issues in many countries. In Brazil, it's been in the law for a long time that children cannot be beaten. And it's not, it's not a practice, in, for example, in schools. Since I was a child, I, I, I ne I've never seen a, a, a teacher hitting a student. And so, to my surprise, that still happens in countries like, like UK, like yeah. schools in London. It's, it's now a debate how to stop uh, physical abuse in, in, in settings like schools, in institutions for children, in, in where, where there are children, and of course, in the home setting as well. Um, so it is, in 20 years, there were amazing changes in understanding the issue of abuse. And again, that has support in our legislation in the laws that in many countries uh, inspired in the idea of children having rights. So a child has the right not to be hurt, not to be, uh, not to have adults that are, that behave abusively. So hitting a child was not considered abuse and it is now. Um, it's not like that, so easy. No? I've been this year to China, and I had a very interesting experience uh, with school teachers who were very concerned about all the discussion on rights, the children having rights, but what about parents' rights as well? How do we discipline the children if we cannot be hard on them? At the same time, the incredible pressure over children, young children and parents, that so the children become very competent. You, as you know, in China, in this generation, everyone can only have one child. It's the, this is the generation of the children, the, the single children in the families, because now they're all in school age. And they have, they have, so many questions about how to protect children, including from a lot of physical and psychological symptoms that they are developing out of anxiety. 
because if they are not very competent, if, you, if they are not very bright, they will be marginalized in the school, they'll be marginalized by their peers, their teachers, they'll be put in special classes um, when they are very young, and they will be also marginalized in the families. They were very, very worried about this. So these are all changing views of something that is old, but it has new ways of approaching, understanding, and leading with them, dealing with them. In terms of marginalized uh, children on the streets, I can't speak for five hours. All, uh, it's been 20 years of my work nonstop. I will just say that we have a lot, a lot written, and it's not a lot in English, but some that you can have access to. And I started in 19, as I got back, the first year I got back to Rio in 1983, there were so many news about how these miners, they were changing their, their, their names were being changed yet, how these miners were so dangerous, they were in, on the streets and they were attacking people. They were disturbing the order and the peace. And with my experience with these children, I knew that, that they were not the monsters they were being painted in, in the media. And I decided then to uh, coordinate the first piece of research on street children in Rio de Janeiro in 1983, listening to them. So I had a group, a small group of, of students with me. We sat on the streets and started talking to them. And that was the first opportunity that I had to listen to their stories. There were 300 of them. And we, we keep listening to them in different, in, in, in different moments. Um, at that time, we were able to fight with the media literally and publish exactly where what they were doing on the streets and in some ways shocking the public opinion because we published something like what they are really doing has an angle of solidarity because these kids are seven years old and they feel responsible for the family boys and girls that are begging there are working as vendors, doing whatever they can, sometimes prostituting themselves so that the younger children can eat and not die. And these stories were published like that, and it, they served as uh, to motivate a lot of debate uh, about who these children re really are and who is to be, who is responsible for this. Is it fair to make these children the, the monsters, and, uh, and that was very important. And it's, I must say that that is not over. In part, a growing number of children occupied the streets, in part because we were also fighting to close this, those large institutions I came here to, to, uh, to, 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 to look at and to, to work in Brazil to close them down, and we did because some of the orphanages had, had a thousand children. They were not orphans. They had parents, but they were poor. 
So the whole struggle has been to create alternatives to support these children in their own context, support these children in the communities where they should develop a sense of belonging, and they don't because they are so bad. Their dreams is to escape from there as soon as they can. So if they, if they, if they get better, they will leave the community. They will not stay there and try to help or try to do something or to fight for the rights of the people in that community. What they, what they will want to do is to move to a better neighborhood. And it's, it's, uh, uh, it's something that we have been uh, pointing out instead of just maintaining the idea of, of, or the rhetoric that, yes, they are citizens, they have rights, and, and, but they should live in these horrible conditions. So the, the, I keep defending that there is not, not such a, th a thing as a street child. Nobody belongs to the streets. Nobody lives really on the street for some exceptions, but for a short time because these children are the ones I reported in my speech as those that seem not to find any space for them in society. So their trajectories are, tra are trajectories of kids that keep circulating. They are always in movement. So from their homes and communities, they start wandering in the streets. They find other peers. Sometimes they think, OK, this is my family, because I feel better with these other kids here on the streets. So very often, they eat better. And um, from there, very often, they get in trouble, because they are hungry. There are drugs. There are very, very cheap drugs on the streets. And the worst drugs, the cheapest drugs, are the drugs these kids are taking. And we associated to that, there are so many problems that come with other disabilities that they also develop. And they become more and more marginalized and start wandering through the welfare system. So today is a shelter. Tomorrow they get in trouble, go to the delegacia, to the police, and from there they go back to the streets, take a lot of drugs, go to a clinic, as they say, get clean, and go out again up to the point that they are in so many different places, they feel they belong nowhere, and even if they find people that are, are caring and want to help them, after some point they simply can't stop anymore or believe that they can trust anyone. So it's, it's just a very, a, a very brief, say, overview of a phenomenon that is much more complex than saying, oh, look at all those street children, and, and say, OK, those are the marginalized ones. As I said in my, my speech, I, get, I got so struck last year in working in, in in schools, in focus groups, with kids, kids that are in their families, they are studying, they look at them, they're very lively, very vibrant, and they kept telling us these stories of how they felt so discriminated against, how they felt ashamed of wearing the uniform they wore from the public schools, because it resembled the uniform that the people, the garis in the streets, those who sweep the floor, is the same color, it's orange. 
So orange is a fashionable color in Brazil now. Orange is like, well, my kids will love to wear orange. It's in fashion. But for these kids, the uniform is, um, is something that makes them ashamed. And because they feel when they go in the supermarket, people will be watching, people will hold their, their bags tightly, people will look at them and suspect maybe this kid is going to rob me. And they develop this consciousness of being different. I must say that it hurts me to tell this because this, I, grew, I grew up in mixed public schools, probably one of the only period in Brazil in the 50s where we, we had a growing, uh, I think, ideal of transforming the schools in, in schools with quality. And I was very proud of my school and I studied with kids that were very different from me. And in part, in part, I think that I learned to be very tolerant of all the differences because I had friends were so different from me, and that is less and less and less possible as the, 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 the international trend has been one to privatize what, I, what are public services and, pub, and, and basic rights of children like education and health. So good health is associated with paying very high rates, and there, there will be the good hospitals. Good education is associated with very high fees. So everything is different. The building is different. The resources are different. There are things that other kids can't have. And they, of course, they can see that. Right? Too long. <laughs> you control the time, because I have no idea. I'm completely lost. Huh? So yes? The child? Trafficking of children? Yes. There, are, there are several, say, awful practices associated to, to trafficking of children, including children that disappear and get um, to be adopted in other countries, and horrible uh, stories about uh, children that got sold and organs sold. I must say that apparently um, this is not fiction, because this has been investigated by what is equivalent to the FBI in Brazil and internationally, because it, this, is re, this is related to several countries in poor countries. And so, there, so it keeps being in the reports. So we could say that there is some evidence that for awful purposes, children and sometimes other vulnerable people, young people, women, get um, sold. Uh, with, with uh, promises for adoption, for a better home, women for better income, and they end up prisoners in certain countries and have to work as prostitutes until they die. 
So uh, there is uh, there are projects associated to the uh, to the Secretarias of Human Rights in Brazil and associated with other countries uh, investigating the phenomenon. Um, and in relation to trafficking in Brazil, we would also talk about children that get um, used, uh, that's a, a, a form of sexually abused, but they get used by adults for pornography purposes and, and, um, and, and sexual activities. And that has been very successfully visible in Brazil. And uh, very often when you are arriving in the country, uh, tourists get some cards explaining that that is illegal in the country and that they will be arrested. And that's what it has to be done because adults are the ones that are behind these activities. So I consider this one of the areas because it's so dramatic, different from the, the, the kids in the public schools where everybody thinks, fine, they are okay, they're fine, right? Um, but these groups that become very visible because of tremendous violation of their rights, um, there, has, there have been some very important responses. We have in Brazil very active NGOs, we, and also with our law, the 1990 Children's Act, we have the Councils for the Rights of Children, that is supposed to work in parity with the government. It's not an easy thing due to, to uh, our politicians being so used to be so powerful that to work, it's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult but important exercise to be putting them in, in the right place. So for example, in Rio we have a mayor that will disregard the fact that in the law we have an article that talks about the children's fund. The children's fund is a fund that the Council for the Rights of Children have to use wisely for the good of, these, of children or sponsoring projects that will help them elaborate and monitor policies for children, which is their responsibility. And it's a very unique thing around the world. We, we, it's a very, very important initiative that is hard because it, it means a new practice to change attitudes, change mentalities, but at the same time, it's very unique and very important. I have been trying to do some work in um, surveying how they are doing and, and maybe more than evaluating because we know it's so difficult, the results some, sometimes are not good, but more so that it's, it remains registered in history because we know very well <laughs> that some important things disappear because they don't get registered. So it is as if it never existed and people keep reinventing this wheel. And sometimes we do some projects basically to uh, 
to highlight or to, to show the importance of the idea, to, to help review the practices and to reinforce that it is in terms, in demo, in terms of a, a practice in a democracy, it's incredibly important even though it faces too many difficulties to do a good job. So the children's councils and the guardianship councils in Brazil are a target for us to be studying. Uh, we have some partners here at, at Harvard. Professor Felton Earls have been uh, discussing that with us and Columbia University. In, 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 in that, because they have been there, they were so amazed at the idea that, that they have been supporting the, the, um, the need to register what's happening and to make sure that, for example, the government supports such, such initiatives. So our mayor simply uh, up to now will refuse to sit in the, to negotiate about this fund. He uses the funds the way he, he feels like, and he feels he doesn't need to explain anything to anyone. So it's, it's just one example of authority and, and abuse of power that is, is still in place in so many countries, and there's a lot to do, legally speaking as well, concretely, to change that. And we do have very important advocacy groups, many NGOs um, doing fantastic work in Brazil. And I'm very hopeful that in this uh, government, um, we will be able to expand our influence in the central, but also especially our local governments in changing policies and practices. Um, and I am sure uh, Chapin Hall will continue to be an important partner in that, in that uh, endeavor. Yes? We are out of time. So um, let me just give you uh, my website. I'll be back in Brazil the first week of December. And it, it is www.ciespi.org. And let me thank you, Christine and uh, Karina, for this opportunity. And I hope that you have a very interesting time. I'm sure you will in the next few hours. And I'll be here to, be, to continue to discuss with you. Thank you very much.